Before we start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that illumines our minds to its power and its wisdom that's contained in your word. May we, as your children, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of your holy word. That we may hunger and thirst for more of it, that we may live in obedience to your commands for us. Knowing that as we do, it expresses our love for you, our worship to you, because of your deep, deep love for us and sending your son to die in our place for the forgiveness of our sins that we've committed against you, that we may now stand righteous before you and live lives that are pleasing to you. And as your children, help us to be faithful stewards of the gift of grace and the gift of the gospel to proclaim this great hope to the world. May we hear from you now. Ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Titled this sermon, The Primacy of the Word. The Primacy of the Word. Thus far, Luke has given us a preview of what the church is and what the church's place in God's plan is. The church is an institution and beacon of hope because Christ is the risen Lord and Savior and because the kingdom of God is at hand. The church has a connection to Christ, a connection to Israel, and a connection to the world. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we learn that the church is the first fruit of new creation. So we as believers have a foretaste of what is to come, and therefore we are to be witnesses. There is hope. The church is a testimony of something greater to come. Where the first Adam failed, the new Adam Christ is triumphant and victorious. Jesus as the new Adam is the basis for why the church is a new humanity. And that is why it is tied to the Spirit's coming to make a new man, to regenerate our hearts, to fill us and dwell us with his power so that we can live for him and proclaim him. The church parallels the creation account. Through Adam's disobedience, creation fell, and the curse of sin and physical, spiritual, eternal death began. But now in the new Adam, Christ, through his perfect obedience, there is victory over sin and death, and there is now eternal life. 
Therefore, the church exists because of what Christ has done. And the church exists to proclaim what Christ has done and accomplished. The church is a manifestation of a new man, a new humanity, the first fruits of new creation. It is the beacon of hope in this world. It is the church of the living God who sent the promised Holy Spirit to give new life and to give hope that his plan is continuing to move forward to a new creation. And because of what the church is, that determines what the church is to do. The Spirit gives life to the church and also empowers the church to do what it is called to do. And how is this to be accomplished? How will people hear? How will the church grow? There's plenty of church growth tactics and methods we could implement or even think of and invent on our own to accomplish this task. But is that what we're supposed to do? A quick online search for how to grow a church reveals the disturbing and sad reality that the church has an unbiblical view and understanding of what the church is and what the church is to do. The results of the the search I did included, you should start a virtual church. You should start a virtual church. Therefore, you can reach more people. But what about the one another's? What about the face-to-face interaction and display of love towards one another? What about the partaking of communion, which we're going to do later, together? What about being witnesses to the public proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection and our union and identity with Christ through baptism? What about that? How do you do those things virtually? Another option is to follow the church growth flywheel, which includes four aspects. Number one, consulting. Number two, branding. Number three, technology. And number four, marketing. That sounds very much like a business model, not a church model. Another answer was, when visitors come, make sure to say, me too, so that they feel included and not different. And the example they gave was when someone comes in with uh, perhaps living in sin or going through some trial and they're responding in an unbiblical way, in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord, you just say, me too, me too. Another one was that was one that I could relate to as this was the church motto for the year of a church that I used to be at, which changed every year because apparently the church's mission changes every year based upon man's agenda. But the motto was, focus on those who aren't here yet. In other words, the empty seats. That's totally backwards. Shepherds are to care for the flock of God in their midst. Another one was, cater your building. As we're thinking about uh, Christ the King Lutheran and whether the Lord would have us be there, uh, cater your building to the demographic your church wants to grow. It even provided a case study, and this is what it said, quote, everything at Flatirons Church in Lafayette, Colorado, reflects their decision to target unchurched men, even their building. Their building looks like a cross between Gander Mountain, Cabela's, REI, and Big Bass Pro Shop. After noticing a lot of tattoos on their members and knowing that many tattoos come with a story, they hired a photographer and took amazing high-resolution photos of many tattoos and found out their stories and made a collage of them all in one large wall in their building. This was to attract people to come to the church in order to grow the church. That's what they thought they were supposed to do. 
build God's kingdom by attracting those, by appealing to their common interests, rather than pointing them to Christ and their need for Christ. And this may all sound ridiculous, but this is what is happening in churches all around the world. The church thinks that they must become more like the world in order for people to repent and believe in the claims of Christ and the gospel. And the book of Acts clearly teaches that central to the growth of the church is the primacy of the word of God, as evidenced through the preaching of the word of God and the proclamation of the true gospel. Throughout Acts, we see the direct connection between the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel with the word of God being proclaimed and lived out. John MacArthur was asked early in his ministry if he had a desire to build the church. And he, he answered by saying, quote, I have no desire to build the church. Jesus said he would do that. And I don't want to go into competition with him. He understood what the church is and what the church is to do. And his ministry has been a testimony of that by proclaiming the word week by week, pointing people to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our task is to proclaim the word to preach the word, to preach the gospel, 2 Timothy 4.2, to be a pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, to be ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, Titus 2, verse 10, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27, to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asked for us to give an account of the hope that is in us, 1 Peter 3.15, to know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8.18. In other words, know Christ. We are to know Christ. We are to preach Christ. We are to testify about Christ. We are to witness about Christ. We are to obey Christ, live for Christ, worship Christ, look forward to Christ. It's all about Christ. The church is to be all about Christ. And we make Christ known through the preaching of the word and the proclamation of the gospel. The primacy of the word of God preached leads to the knowledge and understanding of the word of God. That leads to the application and living out of the word of God. And that leads to the ultimate goal, the worship and praise and glory of God. But it begins with the spirit-inspired word being proclaimed to spirit-indwelt believers who now possess the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit or to the spirit of God regenerating hearts making them alive through the preaching of the word to grant new life in Christ so that they may live for Christ and worship Christ and go out and proclaim Christ. This was central also to the ministry of Christ. He's our example. At the very outset of his ministry, Matthew 4, 17 says, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus is healing many and the crowds were trying to keep him from leaving. And he says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And Luke describes in Acts, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, what Christ continues to do and teach through the apostles, and now the church of the living God in which the preaching of the word is to continue. So we will see the primacy of the word proclaimed, which will further help us to see what the church is and what the church is to do if the church is to be a faithful witness. So in these verses, Luke summarizes Peter's sermon at Pentecost to show what the church's place in God's plan is. 
so that we would know why we are to be witnesses. Why we are to be witnesses. We will see the necessity and the proof as shown by the powerful exhortation and the prophetic connection. First, we'll look at verses 14 and 15, the powerful exhortation. It says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. What led Peter to preach was the Jewish crowd's response to the pouring out of the Spirit on the 120 or so believers and the resulting Spirit-given tongues, which were native languages to the hearers but unknown to the speakers, as they were declaring the mighty deeds of God. And this was clearly a supernatural evidence of an act of God to point to a beginning of a new age, to the beginning of the new covenant and a new man and a new humanity that is unified and united together. Going back to verse 12 in chapter 2, it says, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. And so we see a couple of different responses and reactions to what was happening on that day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured forth upon the believers as they were filled and spoke these known languages, the mighty deeds of God. One group is openly curious, saying, what does this mean? How are these uneducated Galileans speaking these native languages? And so back in verse 6, they are bewildered. Verse 7, they're amazed and astonished. Verse 12, there's great perplexity. In other words, they're not discounting what happened They're truly amazed by it and wondering, what does it mean? But there were others who were not openly curious, but rather openly derisive, saying that they are full of sweet wine. In other words, accusing them of being drunk. So either these are people who did not recognize any of the languages spoken, perhaps they only lived in Jerusalem, or their mocking was directed against the believers who are praising God and speaking of what he has done. And we can think again of the Pharisees, and their response to Jesus' claims and miracles by attributing them to Satan. We can even think of Jesus' own family during his ministry in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. They were saying that he's out of his mind, that he has lost his senses because of what he was doing and teaching. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, this is why we preach, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. We see the necessity of the word of God in spite of the natural rejection of man to the word of God because of the power of God working through the word of God by the spirit of God. Here, those who were there on the day of Pentecost, including the men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, the people who were there to celebrate Pentecost, devout men from every nation under heaven as a result of the diaspora who have now returned in verses 9 through 11, chapter 2, list out all those different regions. Some of them were saying that these spirit-filled believers who were speaking in these known languages that were unknown to them of the mighty deeds of God 
were full of sweet wine. They were drunk. And Peter uses this opportunity to take his stand for the truth. And as we'll see, he proclaims the truth of God's word in spite of their negative response and because of their negative response. In spite of their negative response and because of their negative response. Verse 14 says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, shows their apostolic authority and unity and purpose together. And the word declared is the same word used in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And utterance is the same word used here for declared. And so here, Peter is standing up, speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ and declaring with his Spirit-inspired utterance with the authority of Christ to correct and to inform, to convict and to instruct. And he says, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Listen very carefully to what I am about to say. Listen very carefully. Verse 15, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. The third hour of the day was nine in the morning. He's saying not only is that too early to get drunk, but that's not the correct understanding of what just happened. Let me declare to you what just happened. And in doing so, he answers the question that was raised in verse 12. What does this mean? This is the powerful exhortation. Peter takes his stand to declare the truth of God's word, to give understanding. And we'll see in a few weeks why he does that. This is the powerful exhortation. You must listen carefully because this is what God's word says and this is what God's word means. Secondly, we'll look at verses 16 to 21. The prophetic connection. The prophetic connection. Again, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter references Joel's prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32, to explain what just happened. And we have to understand that Luke is providing a selective summary of what Peter preached. If you look down at verse 40 in chapter 2, it says, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So Luke here is only providing a selective summary of what Peter preached. Luke intends to show what the significance of the day of Pentecost is and what the church's place in God's plan is in relation to Israel and in relation to the world, thus highlighting what the church is to do, to be a beacon of hope to the world. In verse 16, it says, but this, referring to the events of Pentecost, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. What just happened was predicted, and it connects to something. So what Peter is doing is declaring 
that what is happening now is a part of something bigger. It fits into this whole new age. In other words, there's a future reality, and this is one event, Pentecost, that fits into that future reality. And so what is quoted by Peter shows the entire age and how the church fits into it. He's laying out the big picture for these Jews to understand, and so he quotes the prophet Joel to make his point. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. Listen as I read it. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now notice verses 17 to 21. It doesn't sound exactly alike. There are some noticeable differences. And what are they? Joel says, it will come about after this. Peter says, and it shall be in the last days. Also, Joel makes no mention of the end of verse 18, where it says, and they shall prophesy. If you look down your text, you'll see that Peter makes an interpretive addition there. In verse 19, Peter says, the sky above and earth below, whereas Joel doesn't mention that. In verse 21, Peter cuts off the quote mid-sentence at everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel's continues with, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So we have to understand what Joel originally said, and we have to understand how Peter is using it. Joel 2 concerns judgment and deliverance for Israel that is associated with the coming day of the Lord. This day of the Lord coincides with the judgment of the nations and kingdom blessings for Israel in the land in Joel chapter 3. So Joel showed the nature of spiritual renewal for Israel in light of the context of the day of the Lord. And Peter now explains that what just occurred was predicted by the prophet Joel. He predicted that in the last days, God would pour forth his spirit on all mankind, that Israel's sons and daughters would prophesy, that young men would, would see visions and old men would dream dreams, that great wonders would occur in the sky, that signs would appear on earth, that the sun would be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. This is all either progressing towards or in direct connection with the day of the Lord. And so the reality is that every person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's moving towards this great day of judgment, but also one of deliverance if you call on the name of the Lord. This is to show that Pentecost is not a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, but rather to show that parts of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, were fulfilled with the events of Pentecost, yet some aspects await future fulfillment. And it's important to know where this fits in. Not fulfilled yet are verses 19 and 20. The great wonders in sky and signs in the sky on the earth and the sun turning into darkness and the moon into blood which will happen in the future in connection with the day of the Lord. 
and the added above and below by Peter doesn't change the contextual meaning of Joel chapter 2, but simply clarifies that these signs in the sky above and on the earth below will be literal, visible, unmistakable, and that they have not occurred yet. You would know when this happens. Also, the testimony of Scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul said, on the day, said the day of the Lord had not started yet, since the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness had not yet happened. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10, Peter himself argued that the day of the Lord is a future event. It says there, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And this is significant since Peter, since Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 here in Acts 2. Because if decades later Peter viewed the day of the Lord as future, this reveals he did not believe the day of the Lord was fulfilled with the events of Acts 2 that happened before that. And so Peter is clarifying to these Jews, telling them that they are in the last, that they're in the last days. That the day of the, that the day of Pentecost and the pouring forth of the Spirit is a part of that. And so now things will begin to move toward the day of the Lord. Things will now move toward the day of the Lord. The pouring forth of the Spirit on all mankind is emphasized, this pouring forth of the Spirit in verse 17 and in verse 18 and again in verse 33, showing that the resurrected and exalted Jesus is the one who pours forth the Spirit to inaugurate the church after his death and resurrection and ascension to create this new man, this new humanity. And that what was seen and heard was a picture and display of that. The pouring forth of the Spirit on all mankind, emphasis on all mankind, communicates the universal scope of God's blessing of the Spirit. It also shows a shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from a temporary selective ministry of the Spirit to the permanent indwelling ministry of the Spirit upon those who believe. What is the significance of visions and dreams? Seeing visions and dreaming dreams were, they were prophetic activities in the Old Testament. It is connected with prophesying. That is why right before and after, in verse 17 and 18, there is the mention of, they shall prophesy. They shall prophesy, with the visions and dreams being sandwiched in the middle. And so they are a means of prophesying. Visions and dreams of the Old Testament prophets gave insight They gave insight so that God's will and character could be proclaimed. It was directly related to divine revelation. And so Peter's use of Joel is to say that now this comes with the Spirit to all of mankind. God speaks to us through his word by his Spirit, not just to select prophets, but to all who have been filled with the Spirit. And again, Peter's emphasis is not that everything here is fulfilled. And that is why... In verse 18, he adds, and they shall prophesy. They shall prophesy. He's emphasizing one specific part, which is Pentecost and the birth of the church and what the church is and is to do of the entire whole in light of the day of the Lord, which is future. And what clearly shows that we are part of this age and part of this is that Peter cuts off the quotation from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And what does he cut off? the future final restoration of Israel to show that that's not what's happening now. In other words, that is what is to come in the future. He wants us to focus on the task for now. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. 
So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. What Israel just heard was that the last days have begun. And it culminates in a time of final deliverance as well as a time of final judgment. And that is all predicated upon the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Spiritual transformation, new life in Christ. That is what determines final judgment versus final deliverance. And so the word must be proclaimed. Peter brings out what Joel was implying, that this all happens during the last days. This period of time between the first coming and second coming of Christ. And the events of Pentecost begins and is the partial fulfillment of what is to come in the future, which is the day of the Lord. And we are in the time period in history when God moves everything forward to final fulfillments because Christ has died. He has risen and he has ascended and the church has a crucial and critical role to play in God's plan. That's why the church is a history-making and history-changing institution. The new covenant corresponds with all the eschatological promises which are now in process to be fulfilled. The last days is the last stage before the eternal state, the new heaven and new earth. This is the prophetic connection that Peter makes from Joel to the day of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church in this new covenant age as part of the last days. And so we see the primacy of the word of God as it's accompanied by the power of the Spirit. So by God's will and of necessity, it must be proclaimed and preached. It must be proclaimed and preached and heard. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, again, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question for the Jews is, who is the Lord? Same question for us as well. Who is the Lord? And this is what the Jews need to know. And this is what Peter will declare next, beginning in verse 22, with Jesus the Nazarene. And ending his sermon in verse 36 with, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is the Messiah. So going back to verse 12, what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that the truth must be proclaimed. The truth must be proclaimed and Christ 
must be preached as Lord. And jumping a little ahead to verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, No longer are they asking, what does this mean? But rather, brethren, what shall we do? This comes as a result of the word being proclaimed. So what do we need to understand? We are in the last days. Judgment is a part of that. But it's primarily about hope and joy and fulfillment. We proclaim that there is hope. The church is a new humanity, a first fruit of new creation. We have new life in Christ. And so we proclaim Christ and the new life that is only found in him. And throughout Acts, we'll see the primacy of the word preached in direct connection with the growth and strengthening of the church. It's what the apostles do everywhere they go, and it's what the church is to carry on. Ephesians 4, 11, some as Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers to continue this work of proclaiming Christ. And about one-third of Acts, as we'll see, contains speeches or sermons. And the word is clearly linked with the growth of the church. Even the same Greek verb is used in Acts for referring to the increase in the number of disciples as it is for the increase in the word. And it's by the Lord's words that he does his work. And his apostles and now the church after his ascension are his ambassadors and witnesses. And so we proclaim the word so that the word can accomplish his work by the power of the spirit. The word reveals the plan of God. The word reveals the plan of God. We must know it and understand it. We must know it and understand it. That it focuses on the kingdom of God, of which Christ is central, and how everything moves to Christ and the gospel, because it is through Christ and the gospel proclaimed that the kingdom of God will come. This is the primacy of the word of God, and the church is to uphold it and stand firm upon it and proclaim it to the end of the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's important that we know the big picture. That's how this passage makes sense, how the church fits into God's bigger story and therefore tells us what we are to do because of who we are. That we're a beacon and testimony of hope, not just to Israel, who missed the fact that the Messiah had come and they crucified him. But there's still hope for Israel. They can still turn in repentance and faith and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And we proclaim the same message to the ends of the earth. And Acts will portray that movement out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth through the ministry of Peter and Paul and now the church. And we are those who go out and proclaim and witness for him. The last days have started. The reason that is important is because God is about to fulfill all of his promises, but also unleash his global judgment. And the only way anyone is going to survive this is verse 21. And so not only does Israel need to know this, but the whole world needs to know this. And we need to know this so that we know who we are as those who have been called by Christ, saved by him, to live for him. We are God's chosen. 
to go and proclaim this glorious good news. We're in the window of time now when things are made new. And this is a powerful testimony to the world. The last days have begun. The eschatological clock is ticking now. And the church is the beacon and testimony of hope that salvation is now. And it will deliver you in the future. We sang earlier, show us Christ. Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Why? Until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. This is why we preach. This is why we proclaim the gospel. This is why we are the institution of hope in this world. Are we faithful as Christ's church, as his body, as his bride, to exalt him and to make him known, not just with our lips, but with our lives? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony that's recorded down for us in the book of Acts. To know the story from the beginning of creation and throughout the Old Testament, even to the New Testament with the Gospels and now leading up to this time in history, this present age, this new age of the, the church and the new covenant with the pouring out, the pouring forth of the Spirit and what this means as it begins this time of fulfillment towards the day of the Lord. And we don't know when that day will come. That is only known to you. But you have left us with your spirit to empower us to be bold witnesses. And you have given us a task to fulfill. May we be faithful and obedient to proclaim Christ because we love Christ. And we know that hope is only found in Christ. Pray these things in his name. Amen.